Advent means coming or the arrival of. Advent is all about expectation. In Advent, we remember the expectation of the children of Israel in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for the promised Messiah. We remember their story. We remember the prophets, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Daniel, all these people saying that the Messiah would come. And in Advent, we, we kind of put ourselves in the story of their expectation. But also in Advent, we have a longing we have an expectation because Christ came once in the form of a baby. He will come again in the form of a king to reign, to conquer sin. So for us, Advent is also a reminder that Jesus is coming again, that there's an arrival or the coming of the Messiah. So the promise to Israel of the coming is the promise to the church of the coming. And it's a season of Advent. Why Advent? Why do we do this? Because for some of you, this is, especially maybe you grew up in a Baptist church, celebrating Advent and maybe even celebrating Lent are, are kind of things you're like, well, I don't know why we do that. And I know Catholics do some of those things. I don't know why we do that. Here is the why behind why we are celebrating Advent. Advent is a practice. It's a liturgy. So this is a crazy season that we're getting ready to enter into. Many of you will have about 14 Christmas parties over the next four weeks. Those of you with young kids, family spread across, you will go drive from one to the other all across the Midwest or maybe farther. This is a crazy season. Our calendars are dominated by the rhythms of consumerism. Pull out your calendar for December. It's probably full. So Advent is this very intentional time where we make ourselves step, step out of the rhythm of consumerism and into the rhythm of redemption. It's a practice. Because there's, there's brokenness in our world. I was watching football over the past couple of days, and every time out, after every touchdown, I'm bombarded with images on the screen that says, you need me, you need this to make you happy, to fulfill you. There's brokenness, there's a longing in our world that no collection of Black Friday deals can cure. There's a thirst, and no amount of pumpkin spice lattes can satisfy. And there's a joy that no amount of white elephant gift exchanges can fill. See, Advent causes us to step out of the rhythms of consumerism and into a different rhythm. Advent is a practice. It's a liturgy because our practices shape our belief. So Advent, very intentionally, we step out of a consumeristic rhythm into this rhythm. It's a practice of talking to ourselves and not listening to ourselves. It's a practice that forces us to slow down. It's a practice that makes us active in shaping our faith, not just reactive. Advent will shape us if you will let us. So traditionally in Advent, here's the four weeks that you look at. It, it starts the four weeks before Christmas or the four Sundays before Christmas. The weeks that we celebrate are hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, peace, joy, and love. So today we will look at that. Just parents, just so you know, 
Um, and I'll tell you why in a second, why we're doing this. But in these four weeks uh, of Advent, we're going to cover some topics with some tension. Today, specifically, we're going to look at sexual abuse and shame that comes with that. So if you have happened to keep your young kids in here, you might think about taking them down to the kids' area for this. Um, but peace or hope, peace, joy, and love are the four weeks of Advent. And so what we're going to do as a church is we're going to look at those four topics, and we're going to look at our culture and say, where are those things lacking? Where are they missing? And together, we're going to step into some tough places where brokenness is there and sin reigns. And in Advent, we're going to step into those places with expectant yearning to see what does redemption look like here? What does it look like for God to make all things new? As we step into these spaces, here's my prayer for us as a church, that we will not sit back passively and say, look how bad things are. But that we will lean forward, we will step in actively and say, how can I bring the work of redemption to darkness? How can I be a city on a hill in the midst of darkness? So week one is about hope. Hope, someone said, is, is faith for the future. The biblical idea of hope is more than just optimism. So hope is this steadfast longing for redemption because I'm certain it will happen. So hope is to be certain that something will happen. When we talk about hope, we're not talking hope like, I hope the Chiefs win today. And they're playing Denver, so they probably won't. Like that, <laughs> grumbling. I got to woke you up. That, like, that's not biblical hope. Hope is not, to all you single ladies, I hope that guy will ask me out. The biblical idea of hope is a certainty because I know it will happen. I can count on this promise. I can have hope because I know for sure that this will happen. Hope is a story of transformation ahead. So hope remembers the brokenness of our past, but it dreams and declares that things will be different in the future because God is making all things new. Hope refuses to believe that things will always be as they have been. So guys, as we're talking about hope, we're not talking about this Hallmark, Hallmark type hope of a little card with a cute little illustration on the front. We are talking about steadfast warrior hope that looks at brokenness and says, Jesus is coming back. He has promised to make all things new. There is a redemption. How can I hope and be a part of that redemption and bring it here? That's the type of hope we're talking about. We're not talking cute Hallmark. So here's what we know about, hate, about hope. Evil hates hope. Satan hates hope. Evil would rather us binge on Netflix or chocolate or sexual addiction or food or shopping or anything than look at the hope of redemption. The work of evil is to steal hope. And here's where this series came from. I was, I was listening to a podcast, an interview with a guy named Dr. Dan Allender. He wrote a book called Healing the Wounded Heart, which if 
uh, which will be on our Facebook page. We'll put a link to that. I encourage you to get that if today's talk resonates with you. Dr. Dan Allender, Healing the Wounded Heart. And it was a podcast, as an interview, he was talking about um, sexual abuse and what happens with sexual abuse. And I was listening to that, and it was a couple of months ago, and I was praying about how do we do Advent, what are we going to do with the four weeks of Advent. And here's the phrase he said. He said, sexual abuse brings shame, and shame is the absence of hope. Sexual abuse brings shame, and shame is the absence of hope. And we said that phrase, shame is the absence of hope, right then. I think I even called Brad. I was like, hey, I know what we're doing for Advent. And then we started looking at the other weeks and said, where, um, where is the darkness? And, and what God has created for good, where do we find darkness? And that's what we're going to speak into. So we are going to talk about sexual abuse today. We're going to talk about it through the lens of what it does and causing shame. Here's what we know about sexual abuse. Um, Of the women out there, one in four of you have been affected by sexual abuse, statistically. One in four. It's not just a female problem. One in six men have been affected by sexual abuse. Here's what we believe at Hill City. The local church must be a place where we are not afraid to speak into and care for victims of sexual abuse. That we can't just close our eyes over and hope that it doesn't happen. That it is happening. It's a reality, especially with our congregation being a young congregation. The women most susceptible to this are 18 to 36. That we must be speaking into it. Childhood sexual abuse, children being sexually abused, has actually been on the decline, a very sharp decline over the past 30 years, which is awesome. But here's what has been on the rise, adolescent and young sexual abuse, or young adult sexual abuse. Sexting, Snapchat, the hookup culture, it's all become the Nord. Here's Here's a definition of sexual abuse that I found in my research. Sexual abuse is any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accompanied through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. So here's what I want to do today, and we're going to step into Genesis in a second. I want to expand our idea of what sexual abuse is, because most of us, when we hear the term sexual abuse, here's what we think. Rape. Right? And, And that is... Sexual abuse. That is a very violent form of sexual abuse. But I want to expand our idea of what sexual abuse is. One person said, abuse is misuse of anything. So when I say sexual abuse, I'm not just talking about criminal rape. Some examples of what would be classified as sexual abuse Young men being exposed to pornography at a very young age by an older brother or uncle or a dad. A premature sexual experience for a young adolescent before their bodies even developed. Sexual harassment. A boyfriend or girlfriend kind of talking the other person into things. May not be classified as a criminal rape, but very much a sexual abuse. And as we talk about that, that's the the lens in which I want us to look at that. And here's what we know about sexual abuse. It causes 
shame. And we're going to see how sin causes shame in this first narrative of creation. We see shame, this, the story of shame, on the first humans in earth. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis. Let's, we're just going to jump through and then we'll land in chapter 3. But look at Genesis chapter 1. So God's created everything. And after he creates, he says it's good. He finally creates humans. He said it's very good. And as, as God sums up his creation, his work, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and here's what we see. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. God saw everything. The creation, the animals, people. And he said it was good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, flip, flip over there, he creates him good. He talks about how he creates man and woman. He creates them in their own image. And here's what he says in, in chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, because everything is good, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame, or they were not ashamed. So the pinnacle of God's creation are humans. He creates them in his identity, and here's what he says about them. Because they are good, they will, a man will leave his father and mother, God's design, that he will hold fast or cleave to his wife, that the two shall become one flesh, that their bodies will physically come together, their lives will come together, their emotions will come together. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. God blessed these children and told, him, told them, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the deal. I only know one way in which to do that. And he says it's good. So God has created sex as this beautiful thing for his children. God looks at sex and he delights in it. He delights in his children coming together in physical union. He looks at the seal of a covenant marriage as being physical connection to bring oneness, to bring the marriage together. And he says, it's good. And look at that statement. In the, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were completely known, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and they knew no shame. We can't just skip over that. Can you imagine, husbands, wives, can you imagine a marriage with no shame? Zero. No emotional hurt. No physical harm. No hurtful words. Women, no shame about not being the best mother. Husbands, no shame about, am I meeting the needs of my family? They knew no shame. It's God's design. Completely free, saying, go, enjoy, be fruitful and multiply. Come together because you know no shame. But I told you, Satan hates it. He hates joy. He hates a joy of no shame. He hates the intimacy that that brings between a man and a woman. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, and Satan decides, you know what, I'm going to do something about this unashamedness. 
Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, which is a lie? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Satan tries to trick her once. She doesn't fall for it. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, Oh, you, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be just like God. You see what he's playing off of pride. You can be just like God. You can be in your own God. Knowing good and evil. Verse 6, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That it was a delight to the eyes. Look at that. God has given her everything. A marriage with no shame. But yet, the one thing that he said don't touch, that looks good. So it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So where God had created them and left us with the statement of, they were, knew no shame or they were unashamed. Now we see that they were naked and the thing that they felt was shame. Side note, I have a trouble saying the word naked. I'm a hick and I say naked um, because I kind of always thought like you're n- naked from your neck down. So it's naked, not naked. So just I apologize in advance. But here when their eyes are open, they knew they were naked They were vulnerable. They knew shame. And as soon as they realize that they're vulnerable and realize that they have shame, they go try to cover themselves to cover their shame. Here's what evil does. Evil mars beauty and creation through shame. Shame is something every one of us experience. We don't have doesn't necessarily just people that have been sexually abused feel shame. Every single one of us feels shame. We have shame about our career. How do I get to where I want to go? I'm not as good as I want to be. How do I get that promotion? How can I get more respect about work and that causes shame? Women have shame about raising kids. And you watch on Facebook how creative all the other moms are and you have shame on why can't I be the mom that they are? Because they put their bad times on Facebook, right? Some of you are, are wallowing the shame of past mistakes. Some of you are wallowing the shame this morning of current mistake that you made last night. Some of you are living in shame because of hurtful words that you have said or that have been said to you. One writer said this about shame. Shame's the tool that evil leverages to bring out all that we would call sin. So evil uses shame to destroy the beauty of God's creation. And when we talk about sexual abuse or sexual harm, evil uses sexual harm to turn the human heart away from God and saturate the heart with shame. 
Here's what we know about sexual abuse, that it brings shame, and shame becomes a cancer that spreads and gets into the deepest crevices of the heart. Like it goes deep. It's like a cancer that just wiggles its way into the deepest parts. It doesn't go away because we minimize it. It doesn't go away because we try to forget it and hope that it didn't happen. That the shame actually brings in lies and deceits and accusations and it destroys our trust in God and it actually attacks our very identity. Shame says things like this, I am not enough. There is something wrong with me. Shame would say this, no one could ever love you if you showed them who you really are. Sexual abuse gets into the shame, says things like, your body is evil. Sexual pleasure is evil, it's dirty. There is no way God could delight in you. Those are all the stories of shame. And shame is the primary means to prevent God's people from using the gifts that they're designed to give. Shame will sideline us. Because it's an identity. So Adam and Eve sin, their eyes are open, they realize they're vulnerable, and they try to hide themselves. And look at verse 8. Here's what we're going to find them next. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Before they sinned. Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden, and now because of the sin of shame, they hear the Lord walking in the garden. They go and they hide from the presence of the Lord because that's what shame does. It distances us from God and others. It, it makes us hide in isolation. So they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Shame, and, and especially from sexual abuse, it causes us to turn away like the prospect of being seen in our state of shamefulness, the prospect of being known is too much for us to bear, so we have to go hide. And that's what we see Adam and Eve doing. They are in a frenzy to hide themselves. Shame says you must keep secret. Don't let anyone see. In Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a, a phrase, a quote that's used that we are as sick as our secrets. And Adam and Eve are living in the, the shame of secret sin. So shame alienates, it isolates. It declares, I am damaged goods. God would not love me. And as we look at the idea of sexual abuse and and, and I know for sure some of you in here have it because we've talked about it. But many of you probably have never told a single person that you were ever abused because of the shame of sexual sin and of, and of sexual marring that happens because of abuse. And shame makes you say things like, it's my fault. So shame, it alienates us, it isolates us. It makes us want to hide from God because God would never accept me if he knew what I had done or what I would thought about or heaven forbid that I had actually enjoyed part of it. 
and it creates, makes us isolate ourselves from others because if they really knew me, they would not accept me. Story, shame is a story that we live in. Now, and here, here's the dangerous part about shame. Here's the loop of it. Is when we start feeling shame, we have to do something to deal with that shame. Adam and Eve had to do something. They make fig leaves for themselves to cover. They go hide. When shame creeps in, we must do something to, to deal with it. So we numb ourselves to deal with shame. So shame becomes this fertile ground where all addictions grow. Addictive patterns like food or drinks or hobby or sex or video games or exercise or pornography or masturbation, all of it comes from this idea of shame, this feeling of shame, because I've got to do something to deal with the shame, so I go to something else to try to make me feel better. And then here's the loop of it. As I go to something else, as I go to that coping mechanism, and I deal with that shame, at the end of that, now I have more shame because I turn to a coping mechanism to deal with it, and that's the cycle of addiction. So the alcoholic that uses alcohol to cover shame binges on alcohol and then wakes up and says, I can't believe I did that again. More shame. The guy that was sexually abused as a child and never dealt with and is living the shame of that turns to pornography to deal with that shame, which then leaves him with more shame. So shame, it, it creeps into the crevices of our heart. It's this fertile ground where addictions grow. And then a shame sits there. And, and listen, God, we can let it sit there for years. Like we may be able to mask it and kind of cover it up for years, but eventually it's going to come to the surface. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3 because here's what we learn about shame. That the overflow of shame is contempt. Look, look at verse 8. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And in his shame he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I have commanded you not to eat? Here's the contempt. And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave it to me. And I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see the effects of, of shame? Of this sin. It gets in. They go hide from God. God comes searching for him. We'll talk about in a second. God comes searching for him. He says to the man, hey, why are you hiding? And what's the man say? The woman made me do it. Right? That's exactly what he says. Like another chapter before, God gives Eve. And he goes on this great, kind of throws out this great line of poetry about bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this is such a great thing. And now, because of shame, it's like, God, it's her fault. And then the woman, eh, Satan, it's his fault. He made me do it, right? 
So shame, here's what it does. It brings contempt. So people that are living in the story of shame, we turn to contempt to face the harm of abuse, betrayal, powerlessness. Like it becomes easier to provoke contempt than open up my heart and let someone close. Now, contempt can flush itself out in many ways. It can go towards ourselves. Most sexual abuse victims have strong contempt for themselves. It goes beyond more like, well, it was my fault. It goes deeper than that. Sexual abuse victims have very little empathy for themselves. In talking to one um, of our members that have been sexually abused, here is the phrase, I should have known better than to go with him there. I didn't fight. I was just stupid. And so shame turns this contempt of, you didn't do anything about this. It's your fault. It's really you probably wanted it to happen. And then the person I talk about, because that's what they believed about themselves, you know what they lived out for the next few years of their life? That identity. This is all you deserve, so you might as well just do it, because this is who you are. See, the, the effects of shame, and especially the shame of sexual abuse, it goes to contempt, number one, against ourselves. Here's the other place it goes, to other people. So shame brings this I, I got to deal with it. I got to work through this area of shame. So I've got to go, got to bring out contempt. And it's easier to have contempt towards other people, even people that love and care for me. It's easier to do that than actually deal with my shame and show them I'm hurting. So shamed people shame other people. So this is why a man will emotionally disconnect from his wife. It's not that he doesn't desire to be connected to her. It's that he's afraid she will see him for who he is. And that shame brings contentment that says, I must keep her at arm's length. So Satan uses shame. Sexual abuse victims, the number one thing they feel is shame, and it creeps into the crevices of their heart, and it comes out in contempt. And shame is the complete absence of hope. And so they say things like this, what's wrong with me? You know, one of the, one of the, uh, the deepest areas of shame, for, this is for sexual abuse victims. I mean, think about this until I started researching. Here's the deepest area of shame. Let's take a, um, a young boy who's molested by an older man. We would look at that and say, well, how is that ever his fault? Why would he feel any shame for that? Here's why probably he's feeling shame for that. is because that was probably someone that he trusted. Almost all sexual abuse comes from someone that's close in relationship to the person who's abused. So it's probably someone that he trusted. And his body probably responded in some way to the physical touch. That's the deepest area of shame. So I'm, a young boy is 
is inappropriately touched by someone older than them, and they feel cared for at some level. Even though part of them knows it's wrong and it's, it's gross and it's confusing, part of them feels cared for and feels loved. Their body may respond sexually to that touch. And as they get older and they start to think about that and they kind of have parameters to consider that, here's what they say. What kind of a freak am I? The deepest area of shame. So shame says, what is wrong with me? Like there's something revulsive about me. Others seem fine, but I don't. I don't have what it takes to change this pattern. And hope becomes terrifying for someone living in shame. Like at first, the idea of hope is the scariest thing you could ever imagine. At first, it's easier to hide in hopelessness and shame. And hope is scary. But if we're going to start to change our story and get out of this cycle and this loop of shame, hope is the one thing we must embrace. We must embrace the idea of redemption that God has promised in the gospel. Christians, here's what we must do. We must start naming our shame. We must name it. We can't just sit back and hope it goes away. We must name our shame. And with sexual abuse, it happens in the context of a relationship. That's where sexual abuse happens, in the context of a relationship. And it's through a relationship and naming shame that, someone, that one can start to walk away from it and find victory. Like how crazy would we be if a doctor told us, hey, you have a, a tumor and it's in your brain and it's kind of it's kind of getting its way down in some deep places, and you're like, well, I'll just hope it goes away. I'll just try not to think about it. Right? We would look at someone and say, you're, you're nuts. You're crazy. Well, here's the deal, guys. Shame is a sickness, and it is w- wiggling its way to the deepest crevices of your heart and your mind, and to just hope that it goes away through willpower or time is crazy. We must name it. Healing will only come through naming your shame, naming your abuse. Most victims of sexual abuse never tell anyone about it. And they just live in it. And it becomes a repeating pattern in their life. So shame needs to be named. Abuse needs to be named. So we can attack these underlying issues in it. We must allow God to open up, open up the wound and start to pull out and expose the shame. I was talking to one, um, one girl. And uh, we were talking about her life and just things that um, she was working through. And she said this, I've never told anyone this before. But several years ago, I experienced sexual abuse. First time she'd ever said it. She wouldn't come to grips with it for several years. It was actually abuse. Wouldn't name it. Just tried to forget about it. And I said, okay, tell me what happened. And, and, I, and over the next three or four minutes, I watched this girl change from person. We were just sitting down having a normal conversation. She had long sleeves on. And here's what she did. She rolled down her sleeves and she tucked her arms inside her sleeves as she starts talking about what happened and there was a a sweatshirt and she had a hood and she pulled it over and came moved from this kind of open body language to this very closed 
as she talked about what happened. That's shame. And when she was living out that story of the shame. But as she talked about it, and then the next time talked about it a little more and then, and then told someone else, the next time, because I was there when she told another person about it, her body language started to change a little bit because she was naming shame. She was exposing the abuse and God was starting to bring healing into it. Guys, we can only reclaim what we name. Hope is the courage to name abuse and to name shame. Hope must face the truth because it won't go away on its own. Hope must grieve the pain but look ahead to the redemptive work of God. Here's what we do. We must bless what God blesses and curse what God curses. If you're taking notes, write that down. We must bless what God blesses and curse what God curses. Here's why that is important, especially with sexual abuse, because shame says everything is dirty. Sex is dirty, relationships are dirty, intimacy is dirty, everything is bad. And, and a, a sexual abuse victim will live in that. And they'll continue to live in this sex is bad. I've counseled married couples, or I'm sorry, pre-married couples. They're getting ready to go to their wedding, and the girl is not looking forward to the sexual part of their marriage because of past abuse. She wants nothing to do with it because in her mind, intimacy is bad. It's dirty. And naming shame is the process of saying, I'm going to bless what God blesses, and I'm going to curse what God curses. So here's what God blesses. Touch. God blesses physical touch. It's good to be hugged by your mom or your dad or a friend. It's good to be embraced by your spouse. God blesses touch. God blesses sexual pleasure. Be fruitful and multiply. He blesses it. He says it's good. God blesses the desire to be known and cared for by someone. God blesses those things. Here's what God curses. Taking advantage of vulnerable people, God curses. God curses misplaced affections. God co curses coercion or talking someone into something. God curses those things. So opening up the heart towards shame and abuse is to start to go through the process of blessing what God blesses and cursing what God curses. It's pursuing hope because hope refuses to believe that things will always be what they have been. So hurting people need something from the outside to step into this space and end the downward spiral of shame. Enter the gospel. Genesis 3, let's look at it again, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Do you see that phrase? I always read this and it's like, oh, God's just taking a stroll early in the morning because it's cool and that's when God likes to walk early because, you know, the weather's nice. And he's calling, oh, Adam, Adam, where are you? No, here's what we see. God's walking in the cool of the day because that's first light. He is in pursuit of Adam and Eve. 
God knows what's happened. God is pursuing. He calls to Adam and Eve and says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? God is the pursuer. To those who have been abused, God is pursuing you, calling you out of your hiding. For those of us living in shame from any area, God is speaking into your shame, saying, where are you? Why are you hiding in shame? I have a different story for you to live in. We see the power of shame broken by the gospel in verse 21 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and he clothed them. So the very thing that they are wallowing in their shame and trying to hide from each other and God, God's pursuing them saying, I'm going to find you. And when I find you, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to fix your shame. And the gospel's calling us out of shame. God is calling us saying, I want to know you. I delight in you. You don't have to wallow in your shame. You don't have to hide from the others and from me. I desire to know you. And he calls us out of shame. And he will cover their shame. Here's what Colossians 2 says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He canceled it. With its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. By triumphing over them in him or in Christ. Listen, the gospel is not just about healing your guilty record. It's about healing the effects of shame. God put Satan to shame. Jesus shamed our shame. He says, you don't have to hide. Because I will cover your shame. And on the cross, Jesus took that shame. Hear me, guys, on the cross, Jesus became a sexual abuse victim. On the cross, Jesus became a sexual abuser. He took our sin. He took our shame. And now he's pursuing us, calling us, step out of the shame. Stop hiding. I want to talk to those of you out here that have actually felt the effects of sexual abuse, either yourself or maybe your spouse. Do you view yourself as the sum of your past experiences? Do you view that what's happened to you is you, and therefore you can never hope for anything better? My prayer for you this morning is you speak against that, that you start to hope. That you say, this is what things, how things were, but these are not how things have to be. And you would step into the light and you would name your shame. Because if you continue to live in that shame, you will only live a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because we tend to live out our identity. So if you think that you're dirty and sinful and ashamed and no one would love you, guess how you're going to live? You're going to live in response to that. 
If you're a sexual abuse victim this morning, Satan wants you to be silent. That's the number one thing he wants you to do. Be silent, cover, put fig leaves on, and go hide, but be silent. And the hope of shame is actually the opposite. It's vulnerability. Saying, here's who I am, here's what happened to me, but I refuse to live this one day longer. And I pray this morning you'd have the courage, because it takes courage. You'd have the courage to name your shame and seek help. See, as we wrap this up, as we look at hope, hope looks at the hurts of the past, but hope believes a different story for the future. Hope says, I am, identity statement, I am a son or a daughter of the king. Hope uses words like redeemed, forgiven, made righteous, new creation, saint, chosen, holy, loved, pure, blameless. That's the identity of hope because it's the identity of the gospel. So as we take communion this morning, may we start to be active in naming our shame. May we believe, respond to the gospel, we believe and repent. May we believe that I am not the, my identity is not based on what has happened to me or what I did. That my identity is based on Christ. And may we repent of these false saviors or false numbing or coping mechanisms that we turn to to deal with our shame. And may we step into the light and let the gospel start to heal that shame. Let's pray together. God, we long... We long for a world where children are not abused. And we long for a world where young girls are not taken advantage of. And young men are not coerced into all kinds of sexual addiction. We long for that world. And we kind of live in that time of we're not there yet. So for us individually in our, in our safe communities, may we start to name shame and step into the light of our shame. I pray specifically for those out here that have faced the horrors of sexual abuse. I pray that they would have courage and have hope to name their shame and step into the light in the context of a relationship with someone to walk with them in it. For all of us, we, we pray against the accusations of Satan that would tell us you must be quiet. And we claim this morning that that is not true. And that hope will come as we name. We thank you for the gospel that Jesus shamed our shame. That he made a spectacle of shame on the cross. And that our victory is found in him. May we claim that victory this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.